What is Jesus's application? It's this, seek separation from sin above all things. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Our gracious Father, we thank you for new morning mercies. We thank you for a church that stands upon your infallible word. We thank you for believers who take the scriptures seriously. We thank you that your grace is inexhaustible. It is unending. It is eternal. And we thank you for Christ, our precious Lord. We thank you for the spirit who is the comforter and the teacher. And we ask now that you would teach us by your spirit for your glory and for your gospel. And all who agree together say, amen. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. What we see on the outside isn't always indicative, is it, of what's happening with the inner man. We know, we've learned how to put on quite the front, quite the external appearance. This morning, this may have happened to you. You came as you walked up and saw some folks outside smiling in your direction, you smiled back and they extended a hand and you extended your hand with a hearty good morning, brother. And then you walked in and maybe that happened again. Maybe it just happened as you took some time to greet one another and someone said, how are you? And you said, I'm good. And yet you are very, very far from good. In fact, you were perfectly on time this morning and yet your spouse or your kids were just sinfully late. They were not regarding uh, anything indicative of the time uh, of the clock. And the kids in your mind should have been doing worship songs in the backseat of the van this morning, and instead they're the spawn of Satan. And you're looking in the rear view thinking, whose children are these? I want to, like, like Moses, just give them back to the Lord. They're your children, Lord. You take them if you want. Um, maybe, you, maybe you lost your cool or your salvation on the way to church this morning, but you still smiled and said, I'm doing good. We can do a lot of external presentations and plaster a smile on our face and act like things are well. We can do that spiritually and make it appear that we are really close to the Lord. We have such fervor for God, while on the inside, there's something much more real. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, right? But the Lord looks on the heart. Listen to what Paul Tripp has to say about our hearts. He said, the heart is the center of your personhood. The heart being the seeds of your thoughts and your desires and your emotions and your motivations and your values. The heart is your control center. The heart is the steering wheel of your life. He says that would mean that what rules your heart will rule your life and your behavior. What owns your heart owns the essence of what is you. And so God is after your heart because if he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. So it's not enough to jump through behavioral hoops when really your heart is being ruled by other gods, end quote. As we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, which we've argued is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived, today we come to the heart of the sermon, and it's not a coincidence that 
The heart of the sermon is about the heart. The heart of the law, not the externals of the law, but what's really going on in the inside. And last week, if you weren't here, we saw that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it to the full. We learned that not even the smallest, most inconsequential part of the law will pass away until all of it is accomplished. We learned that those who believe and teach others to relax the law are considered least in the kingdom, yet those who believe and follow and teach others to adore and to obey God's law will be true citizens of heaven and they'll be great in the kingdom. And we also learned that our righteousness as citizens needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And and this simply means that we need a, a truer, better internal righteousness that's not merely outward. It's been imputed to us uh, by Christ. And so to illustrate what we learned last week, Jesus now moves into, uh, you could say some illustrations. He moves into six practical concerns. And we're going to cover two of them this morning, two next week and two, uh, two weeks from today. Uh, now, two of them, at least two of them are Uh, commands from the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going to look at today. And the rest of them are most likely traditions that were added by the Jewish rabbis of the day. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But if you're taking note, we have just two main ideas, two uh, sections this morning. We're going to see first the heart of murder, verses 21 through 26, and secondly, the heart of adultery, verses 27 through 30. But as we study this today, we're going to see that the moral ethic of the kingdom is not merely outward compliance while we have inner turmoil and evil. No, it's one which flows from a heart that's been made alive by the Spirit of God, a heart that joyfully obeys the commands of God from the inside out. And my prayer today is that the Spirit of God will do what only the Spirit of God can do, and that is to change the heart of man. You and I as parents, you and I as spouses, as uh, believers, members of Christ Church, we, we can easily force or demand others to have outward compliance without getting to the heart. And so I'm praying that's not the case for you and I as we sit under the authority of God's word together today, but that the Lord would get to the heart of the matter because the heart of the matter is the, a matter of the heart. So let's look at verse 21 and start with the heart of murder. And what we're going to do with both of these is we're going to see, at least today, that Jesus gives a stunning new understanding of these two commandments. And he's also going to give with each of these two important applications. So here's the stunning new understanding. It's captured in this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And before we jump into this, um, as you look at verse 21, he says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old. I want to spend a minute on that phrase and make a little footnote. What did Jesus mean? You've heard that it was said of those of old. Well, first of all, this points uh, to the importance that just because something is old doesn't mean it's true. Just because something is uh, old, it doesn't mean it's true. Uh, Some of you, uh, I heard recently someone said like new age teachings aren't new. They're actually very old. And so just because something is old uh, doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Uh, He says, you've heard that it was said by those of old. And 
Notice that he does not say, you have read, but he says, you have heard. And that's an important distinction here. The oral rabbinical teaching was the only access that the common people had to the Torah. They did not have the advantage that we have today, where most of you in your lap this morning have a printed copy or a digital copy uh, in the language that you speak and read in that's fully accessible to you at any time. You just go into your room, pull it off the shelf. Hopefully there's not too much dust on it. Uh, But we have access in uh, our day and in our culture, in our people group, to the scriptures in our language. That was not the case for the average person in the first century. Uh, They did not necessarily have the entire canon uh, of scripture available to them in their homes, where they could, uh, let alone in their hand. And so they had to rely on what was taught to them orally. And for several hundred years, the rabbis were passing down a series of commentaries, a collection uh, on the Bible called the Mishnah. And together with the Gemara, they comprise what's called the Talmud. And essentially, um, within the Talmud, you have these individual little teachings called uh, a Midrash. And the Orthodox Jew believed that Moses received the Torah, the, the the first five books of the Bible, uh, he received them from God and that he wrote down everything God had spoken to him under the inspiration of scripture. However, the Orthodox Jew also believes that God gave Moses additional explanations and examples of how to interpret the written law. And Moses did not write those down according to them, but but he carried with them and passed those on to Joshua and Joshua through history passed them down to and through the rabbis until the day uh, of Jesus. And these, these unwritten explanations were known as the oral Torah and these are found in the Talmud. And so here's where this gets sticky. It gets sticky because the Jews believe that the writings of the Talmud are just as important as the writings of sacred scripture. And the argument is, well, these help us explain and understand the Old Testament. Uh, But not only are there oral laws or oral uh, commentaries on the law, there's also stories. And there's some stories that are so outrageous, we don't find them anywhere in scripture, but they're added uh, as if they are. They're added as tradition to be believed just like scripture. Here's one example. There's a story in the Talmud of baby Moses being held by Pharaoh. And of course, this isn't in the scripture, but at a banquet, Pharaoh holds baby Moses. And as he sits in Pharaoh's lap, he reaches up and he grabs the crown off of Pharaoh's head and puts it on his own. And all of the magicians and all of the priests uh, gasp at this. And they say, you need to kill him because he wants to usurp your throne and your authority. But Pharaoh's daughter runs up and says, no, he's innocent. And she offers a test and she says, okay, um, put the baby on the ground and put some hot coals over here and put the crown over here. And if he reaches for the crown, then you can strike him and kill him because he does want to usurp your throne. But if he reaches for the coals, then he's holy and innocent. And so uh, baby Moses, according to the Talmud, uh, may have wanted to reach for the crown, but an angel came and pushed his, his body, pushed his hand into the coals, and then the coals burned his mouth and his tongue, and therefore he couldn't speak. And that's why, and so there's some of these stories that are just a little bit silly And it's an important thing to understand when Jesus says here uh, throughout chapter five, you've heard that it was said, he's most likely referring not to the law, 
but to what these rabbis had propped up as equal to the word of God. And so as Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, he is not doing this. He's not setting himself up against Moses. That's an important distinction you need to understand. He's not setting himself up above and against Moses, but above and against the interpretations of the law that have turned it into a shallow and callous exterior compliance. Those who added to God's infallible word. And so as Jesus is teaching here, he's bringing the people back to the reality of God's original intention. Remember, before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Jesus was, as the second person of the Trinity, the one who preceded Moses. So he's not come to abolish or dismiss what Moses said. He's here to bring the proper understanding. And so with glorious authority, Jesus in chapter 5 reveals the spirit of the law. So notice the first thing that he says is, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. If you're taking note this morning, this is the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were written on tablets of stone. They were placed within the Ark of the Covenant. And and this, as we said last week, um, was a summary of God's moral law, which is rooted in God's moral authority. The first four commandments or commands are in relation to our relationship with Yahweh. And the last six are relationship with man. Uh, Jesus summarized these two, or, you know, these 10 commandments in two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But it's important to know that the command does not say, you shall not kill. It says, you shall not murder. Now, what's the difference? Well, these are political hot topics. Our Anabaptist friends would would need to hear this because they would misunderstand and they would say, thou shalt not kill ever at all for any reason. Any killing of any other human being is unjustifiably a violation of God's command, according to them. Um, But there's a stark difference between uh, taking someone's life after being enraged against them versus capital punishment, versus self-defense, or in times of war. D.A. Carson helps us understand the difference. He says, quote, what needs always to be asserted by Christians in these debates is that if the concept of the just war is tenable, and if the retention of the death penalty is justifiable, the reason is not because human life is ever cheap and readily disposable, but the very opposite. Namely, that it is precious as the life of creatures made in God's image. Those who campaign for the abolition of the death penalty on the ground that human life, the murderers, should not be taken, tend to forget the value of the life of the murderer's victim, end quote. So all of this is rooted in the imago Dei. That is, that all mankind, not just believers, but all mankind, is created in the image of God. Of God. In Genesis 9, we read this, and this is after Noah's flood. It says, God says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And, and then he says this, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So why don't we take a life 
when someone annoys us in traffic? Why don't we just take their life? Why don't we toss aside those inconvenient elderly? Why don't we just kill the unborn baby in the womb? Why do we not do this? The same principle applies all across the board. Why? Because every human life is created in God's image. And so if you think, oh, this is, our culture will never come to this. If we cast off this command, uh, thou shalt not murder, then eventually we'll cast off um, even the need to protect the sanctity of life from the womb until the end of life. So uh, Jesus says, this is what you've heard. You've heard this. You shall not murder. And if you do, you're liable to judgment. Now, I would argue, I'd contend this morning, most of our congregation this morning, or if you're watching or listening to this sermon uh, at some point, the vast majority of us can cross our arms and lean back in our chair and say, I am righteous in this area. Uh, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. Most likely, none of us have committed murder this morning. That's a safe bet. I'm not a betting man, but I'm arguing that's a safe bet. And so we may be inclined to think, yeah, I'm righteous in this area. I've never murdered anyone. I mean, I came close, but as it pertains to this, I'm, yeah, I'm righteous in this. But what does Jesus say? Notice verse 22. But I say to you, but I say to you. Now, here's the stunning new way to understand God's law. But I say to you, as Charles Spurgeon about this said, quote, what a king is ours who stretches his scepter over the realm of our inward lusts. How sovereignly he puts it, but I say unto you, who but a divine being has authority to speak in this fashion? His word is law, so it ought to be seen he touches vice at the fountainhead and forbids uncleanness in the heart, end quote. Jesus says, but I say to you, as we keep reading, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So not only is the murderer liable to judgment, here's the new understanding. Even the person who has anger in their heart towards another is guilty. Now, we really need to make this point this morning. There's a lot of misunderstanding here. Jesus is not saying murder and anger are the exact same sin. He's not saying that. Some people say, well, sin is sin. And in one sense, yes, from a judicial standpoint, to break one command is to have broken all commands. So yes, from a judicial standpoint, sin is sin. But from a consequential standpoint, not all sin is the same. There are some transgressions which are punishable in Israel by death. Uh, even 1 John says there is a sin that leads to death, meaning by implication there are some sins that do not lead to death. Jesus actually said when he stood before Pontius Pilate, the one who delivered me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. There's a greater sin of degrees. So there are sins with weightier consequences than others. And so Jesus is not saying here that, that anger and murder, it's the same thing. You're, 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 if you are angry at someone, it's the exact same thing as murder. What he is saying, follow me, he is saying the root issue of murder, the heart of the matter, the root sin is anger. Anger left unprovoked will, like every other sin, hideously enlarge to a place where it expresses itself in harming not only yourself, but the people around you. Murder is doing 
what your anger would absolutely lead to if given the opportunity or the removal of obstacles. Let me say that again. Murder is doing what your anger would absolutely do if it were given the opportunity or the removal of obstacles. Now, the first time we read the word anger in the scripture is in Genesis. And, and I'm not one of those persons who, with, uh, with um, hermeneutics, says the law of the first mention. The first mention means in scripture that defines the rest. I don't think that's a thing. Uh, some people may disagree with me. But it is helpful to know the very first time we see anger in scripture is in Genesis when God confronts Cain. And he says, why are you angry? And the Hebrew word for angry there means to glow or to glow, grow warm or to blaze up, to be hot, to burn, to be kindled, to be incensed. And it's a verb in scripture which often is used with the phrase being kindled, anger being kindled. And that's very appropriate. Anger is actually caused by something that displeases us. And of course, there is righteous anger. A righteous anger seeks to defend God's glory, but there's unrighteous anger, there's sinful anger, which seeks to defend not God's glory, but ourselves. And I think it's insightful that this idea of, of a spark of fire is used to describe anger. Anger is like a spark that gets gassed with lighter fluid and it leads to horrific eruptions. Just think of the anger that exists today in our community, in our beautiful, friendly city community. Bradenton is known as the friendly city. Is that true? <laughs> Have you driven anywhere? The road rage. I mean, did this, I wonder, I was thinking this week, did that exist 100 years ago where people on horse and buggy had road rage incidents? Did that exist? Uh, maybe. Um, just think of the viral videos of the airline passengers who lash out uh, and, and disrupt the flights. They have to land the plane to take this disgruntled person off of the flight and they're banned from the airline. Think of the fans in the sports arenas who are picking on the one guy who showed up from Minnesota and they're, they're just lambasting him and embarrassing him and then it, it ends up becoming this rage incident. Think of the, 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 the public protests that start out peaceful, but they end up with rioting, with destruction. Why? Because people are angry. I saw this morning 100,000 Palestinians marched angrily in Great Britain today. Is not all of this fueled by the degenerate rage that kindles within us. And that's just what we see in here publicly. Think for a minute of the domestic disputes, the battered wives, the beaten children, as a result of what resides in the desperately wicked heart of man. You and I this morning may cross our arms and relax in our seat, saying, I am righteous in the area of murder, but who here among us has not been guilty in anger towards another person made in God's image? Now, in verse 22, Jesus mentions three things. He talks about the angry person liable to judgment. He speaks of the insulting person who's liable to the counsel. And he says, the one who says, you fool, is liable to the fires of hell. Now, his argument here is that being liable to a human court or counsel is one thing, but the courtroom of heaven is quite another. You may have gone innocent before man and gotten away with something, but no sin will go unnoticed or unjudged by the courtroom of heaven. Someone here may actually think, actually, I've never been angry in my entire life. 
ever. <laughs> but notice that Jesus includes this person who calls someone else, you fool. And the word for fool here, you can circle it. It's the, the word racha. And, and it doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't really have an equivalent in our English. Uh, it doesn't just mean fool as in, that guy's a fool. He's ignorant. He doesn't know any better. Uh, it, it's more like the word stupid. Um, John MacArthur says it's a term of malicious abuse, derision, and slander. Uh, and MacArthur says it's variously rendered as brainless idiot, worthless fellow, silly fool, empty head, blockhead, and the like. A word of arrogant contempt. Now, has anyone ever said or thought that towards someone? Did you not grow up as siblings? <laughs> Did you never think that about someone? James, as we read earlier in our time of confession, James said this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Jesus here is forbidding not just murder, but he gets to the heart and forbids the anger which broods, the anger which will not forgive, the anger that seeks vengeance, the anger that looks at others as inferior, as an obstacle rather than as the image of God. And so now we come to the time where Jesus gives a practical application of this in the next few verses. So notice verse 23. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, here's what you're to do. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus gives here one of two examples. This first one is the temple. Uh, this is worship toward God. And this would describe the Israelite worshiper coming with their sacrifice to hand over to the priest. And as they're standing there before the priest, they suddenly remember, oh, wait a minute. I need to be reconciled with my brother. They have something against me. That relationship precedes what's happening here. And I've always understood worship is a priority. And yet what Jesus is saying is there is a priority of worship, but if you're standing before the Lord with unreconcil unreconciliation, you haven't reconciled this problem, this needs to be dealt with. There's a priority to deal with this. Still offer your gift, but deal with that first. The second example he uses is in verse 25. And this is not worship, but in the courtroom. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. And truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. And so this is not worship toward God. This is an offense someone has against you personally to the extent that they have taken you to court. And notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, there's a more pressing concern than trying to be right before the judge. And that is, you need to deal with this issue with that person. You, you need to go and plead with your accuser so this doesn't lead to worse consequences. Essentially, Jesus is saying in verse 26 that, hey, the judge, the guard, the prison, they're not gonna listen to you. They're not gonna take any money from you. But the person who you offended, they may listen to you. Uh, so rather than letting things get out of hand, there's a priority of making it right, right now. And so if you're taking note, Jesus' application for a heart that wars against others is this, it is to seek reconciliation with others above all things. Before your worship, before your personal priorities, 
Jesus says, make reconciliation number one. Paul told the church in Rome what body life looks like in Romans chapter 12. And he says this. He says, live in harmony with one another. You've heard harmonious music. Things are in tune. They complement. They go together. They work well. So he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That's dissonant. That's not harmonious. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's not harmonious. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then he says this. This is so important. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is what body life looks like. Reconciliation. Jesus puts this as the priority. It's very easy for anger to rise within us and then to cut people off, to stew over that, to harbor that unforgiveness and just to avoid them. And that's, that's the opposite of what Jesus says. He doesn't say, yeah, go to the temple, make your sacrifice uh, and you know, just let that stuff go. No, he says, deal with it, be reconciled. Now, we come to the second command. And the second point, the heart of adultery. Jesus, again, verse 27 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, again, this is the command. This is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery is the act of engaging in sexual promiscuity outside of the covenant of marriage. There's a Greek word that summarizes not just adultery, but all sorts of sexual sin. The Greek is the Greek word porneia. Now, more particularly here with adultery, the teachers of the law had rightly taught that the act of adultery is sinful. And arguably, there's many people here this morning who can cross their arms and sit back and relax in your seat and say, I'm righteous in this area. I have never and will never commit adultery. But what does Jesus say? Verse 28, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here, here's the stunning new understanding. Adultery is not necessarily the outward act. No, it stems from the heart. The root sin of adultery is sinful passion. You may not have carried out the act. The woman may not even know you. She may not know a thing about this but your wicked heart uh, filled with sinful passion has used the lustful intent of the eye to get what it wants. It's, it's not that the lustful look created the sin or caused the sin in your heart. It's the other way around. The sin in your heart has caused the lustful look. So just like with anger, sinful passion left unprovoked will, like every sin, hideously enlarge and lead to heart adultery, and eventually physical adultery, if left or given the opportunity or the removal of obstacles. Now, I think it's important and fascinating that Jesus uses the word in verse uh, 28, he uses the word everyone, everyone. And this can happen to young men, it can happen to older men, it can happen to those who are unmarried, it can happen to the rich, to the poor, and to men and women. It's for everyone. A, a lustful intent is different, though, than just, a, just noticing that a woman is beautiful or a person may be attractive. That's different. Uh, this is a heart passion bent on desire. 
It's possible to hide behind an alibi that, hey, I've never sinned sexually uh, while married, but then you still are harboring a host of wicked fantasies, corrupt desires. D.A. Carson, again, is helpful here. He says, quote, imagination is a God-given gift, but if it is fed dirt by the eye, it will be dirty. All sin, not the least sexual sin, begins with the imagination. Therefore, what feeds the imagination is of maximum importance in the pursuit of kingdom righteousness, end quote. Jesus would admonish men to see them, to see women as mothers, as daughters, as sisters, as sacred. But instead, sinful passion with the lustful intent of the eye turns women into objects of gratification. But it's important to note this is not necessarily, Jesus is speaking directly of one particular sin, but we can also make a deduction of broader ideas, not just sexual appetites, but the heart's sinful passion will employ our eyes to desire and gratify what it wants. David Gusick reminds us that this principle applies to much more than men looking at women. It applies to just about anything that we can covet with our eye or our mind. So think about that. Have you looked with sinful desires at women or at cars or at houses, at travel destinations, at food or drink or brisket? Have you looked with this passion, a desire? I want that. I'm going to get that. That's mine. I'm going to take it. It wasn't Bathsheba's fault that David, standing on his rooftop, looked with lustful intent. His heart desired to have her. And yet his eye was the gate through which this sin was accomplished. There are many verses in the scripture that speak about our eyes, the importance of our eyes. I'll give you a few. You can jot these down while I read them. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Proverbs 6.25, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Even just her eyelashes can, through the eye gate, prompt lust, prompt desire. Proverbs 4.25 says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Don't look to the right or to the left. That's how we get off the path. Job 31.1, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a, an agreement how then could I gaze at a virgin? And so Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, and that is that adultery begins in the heart with this sinful passion that is carried out through the gate of the eye. And so what is his application? Just like above, he gives us two, two examples. So verse 29 is the first one. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You can circle the word hell there. Uh, it is the word Gehenna. There was a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem uh, that was a smoldering valley of, of basically a dumpster fire. You just keep throwing your debris and your refuse there and it just can perpetually burn. That's a picture of, uh, the, of hellfire. And so Jesus here is using, let me make sure you definitely hear me today. He's using extreme exaggeration or hyperbole 
to make his point. Please hear me clearly. I don't want to hear about anyone going home today and uh, later I find out you amputated your arm or uh, your eye um, because you heard Jesus teach this. Some people have sadly made that uh, deduction. Uh, Second century theologian Origen of Alexandria castrated himself on the principle of this passage. So um, listen, if you take this literally, you're actually not going far enough. Because the member itself is not the root issue, is it? It's the heart. And by the way, uh, Dave Kokel, we just prayed for him. He had heart surgery. It's interesting. Um, Someone said, um, we didn't, after they did the surgery, we didn't see anything in there. (laughs) And he said, you didn't see any heart in there? There's still a heart. Uh, But actually that organ that's beating physically isn't what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. So you can even take your heart out and that's not really the heart that we're speaking of here. And, And so we're not taking this literally, Uh, Jesus is speaking uh, of the sinful exercise of the organ, which is rooted in the sinful passion of the heart. The second example is the hand. Uh, It's arguable that the eye causes you to see and then lust, and then the hand will cause you to carry out what your eye and heart desire. And so he says in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus's application? If you're taking note, it's this. Seek separation from sin above all things. There are some things that need to be sacrificed. Some things that need to be eliminated from the life of the believer. Some things that need to be cut off or cut out. In this case, he's speaking of the loss of limb and compared with the alternative, he's right. The loss of limb is far greater than the loss of soul. And so this morning, if you are tempted with the sin of sexual immorality, you should not own a device with a screen that doesn't have some sort of parental controls or software that blocks or monitors website traffic. That smartphone in your pocket threatens your very soul. Likewise, if you're tempted with the sin of drunkenness, you should never have alcohol in your house. That bottle, that glass threatens your very soul. If you're tempted with the sin of envy, you should just go ahead today and eliminate your social media account because that app threatens your very soul. Jesus reiterates the same teaching in Matthew 18, 8 and 9. You can cross-reference that later, but he says it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. The heart of these matters, whether it's murder or adultery, the heart of these matters is a matter of the heart. We commit adultery in the heart. We may not physically murder someone, but we are driven by our anger being kindled against another image bearer. Now, since we've already been given the application from Jesus to apply these this morning, instead of that, since we've already applied them, instead what I'd like to do is give us a few takeaway points from these two ideas. So please jot these down as you're able as we think about how do we now take this home. First of all, I want to make this important point that none of this is possible apart from being regenerate, apart from being regenerated. Unbelievers are not encouraged today to adopt the moral ethics communicated by Jesus in this sermon as a means of salvation. So if you're an unbeliever here today or listening, uh, 
the idea here is not, oh, I need to do what Jesus is telling me to do, then I'll be saved. No, this is to those who are already saved and who find themselves obeying from the heart. Uh, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter eight, he says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order, this is the important part, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Listen to me, if you're not a Christ follower, none of this is probable, let alone possible. This is all spiritually discerned and you are still natural. You are not spiritual. You're not a person who has the spirit of God within you if you're not a believer. And you this morning need divine grace. And thankfully, divine grace is available to angry, adulterous, wretched heart sinners. Will you this morning, if you're an unbeliever, will you damn your pride today, which threatens to damn your soul? Will you this morning fall upon the mercies of God in Christ? Jesus, God's perfect son, traded the glories of heaven for the blackness of your sin. He took the punishment that you deserved upon himself. And he invites you today to turn from your sin, to trust Christ, to sing those lyrics we sang earlier. All I have is Christ. There's nothing else that I can plead before the Father. This morning, trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Receive his gracious gift of salvation. None of this is possible if you're not regenerate. But secondly, if you're taking note, consider any relationships which may need to be reconciled today. We may not have an animal to give over to a priest as a gift in the temple today, but certainly we've come to worship the Lord. We've come to offer our lives together corporately for his glory, for our neighbor's good. And yet, the priority this morning is not the sermon. The priority this morning is that relationship that needs reconciling. Paul instructed both the churches of Ephesus and Colossae in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. He instructed them as the church, this, this is for believers, to put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice and to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and to forgive and to be tenderhearted towards one another, bearing with them in love. If you don't have the courage or the humility to be reconciled, I pray the Holy Spirit will give you opportunity and strength today to make something right. Now, another point for us is to consider what sin may need to be cut off or cut out from our life today. Maybe it is a relationship. Uh, maybe it's just unbridled access. Uh, maybe it's a hidden file or a phone number or a secret stash. Uh, we all know the Puritan quote, the famous Puritan quote, or if you don't know it, now you do, uh, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up in the 80s, some of you did too, and there's a musical called Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, it was made into a phenomenally bad 80s movie starring Rick Moranis. Maybe you've seen it. You're like, I love that movie. Okay, we'll talk later. But the concept of the musical or the, the movie is there's a small Venus flytrap plant that uh, keeps being fed, but it prefers the taste of human blood. And so it's a, it's a pretty dark concept, but 
the owner, Seymour, starts feeding this plant human bodies. And as it keeps being fed, it keeps growing to this ghastly, monstrous size and then threatens uh, even the owner's life. And this is what sin will do. Sin is like raising a box jellyfish as a pet. And then when it's fully grown, it's time to swim with Junior. Uh, Paul told the Colossians, put to death whatever is earthly in you. And so this morning, you don't need to cut off an arm, you don't need to gouge out an eye, but certainly in regards to your sanctification, there is something in your life uh, that may be causing you to sin. And today, Jesus would get to the heart of the issue and he would say, cut it out, cut it off. So in regards to our sanctification, whether we want to love someone or we want to kill someone, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And as we close, one more final reminder for us of the gospel, this glorious good news, and that is that no sin will truly separate us from the love of Christ. This morning, there may be a murderer or an adulterer among us, but none of us is beyond the love of God in Christ Martin Luther said, quote, sin cannot tear you away from him, Christ, even though you commit adultery a hundred times a day and commit as many murders, end quote. This morning, there's mercy for you and I at the cross. And so may we come this morning with humility. May we come with honesty. May we bring our sins, our burdens, and our blessings to the God who hears through his son. And so let's bow our heads together. I'm going to close us in prayer and then we'll stand and sing together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the finished work of Christ, our Savior. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, the Israelites of this day, the Hebrews, were mixing so many traditions with the scriptures. We thank you that we have the word of God in its completion in our language, we have access to it. We thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the clarity and the authority of Jesus' words, but I tell you, may we heed and hear what you have spoken to us this morning through your word. May we not relax these commands. May we not have an inner attorney that rises to our defense, but may we say guilty as charged. Forgive us, Father, for a heart of anger, for a heart that insults others for a heart of lustful intent, for a heart that desires and seeks and wants its own glory rather than laying itself down for your glory. This heart is desperately and deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Lord, thank you that you know it. Thank you that the psalmist would say, search my heart and know me and see if there's any wicked way within me and if so, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, we thank you that we stand today upon the great, tireless, and even um, blood-filled work of the reformers who, by their own hard work and, and through their own sacrifice and many, many other believers since then, laying down their lives for the truth of Scripture, today, Lord, we can stand upon the fact that it is by Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We ask this morning that you would receive our praise, our confession, our very lives, that you would work that which is pleasing in us. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.